Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Today I'd like to talk about a, a poet, an Irish poet called Nick Laird. And um, how did I discover Nick Laird, I hear you say? Well, I was listening to another poetry podcast, the New Yorker Poetry Podcast, some time ago now, and... Nick Laird was on there reading, amongst other things, his own poem, Feel Free. And I completely fell for it in a massive way. And so I went and bought all his poetry books. And there we go. The book I'm uh, holding in my hand currently is uh, a, a Nick Laird collection called On Purpose. And it's full of brilliant stuff. Um, one of the things I love about Nick Laird is not just the, the sort of joy of his poetry, but it's also a fabulous learning exercise. I mean, and not just of always new and unusual words, which is one of the great joys of poetry anyway, but it's a sort of a advent calendar and everything you find that's confusing, if you open that little door, you'll find a world of knowledge and interesting stuff behind it. Um, just in this collection alone, for example, there's a poem about Evagrius, the 4th century thinker who I had never heard of. And um, it turns out, again, very interestingly, that he identified eight deadly sins, Evagrius, rather than the normal seven. And the extra one was sadness, Sadness is one of the deadly sins, I think, is a really interesting topic and it makes for an interesting poem. There's another poem about sadness in this collection which points out that tears of sadness contain more manganese than tears caused by stuff like cutting an onion or smoke. Um, yes, that is the store of stuff that you get in a neat lead poem. So I'm going to go to it. The poem that I've chosen from this collection is called The Underwood Number no. 4. And it's a, it's a longish poem. I'm loath to leave any of it out because it's so rich and it all is like a house of cards important to each other section. So I've, you know, I've beaten myself up about the length of these podcasts. I said from the beginning that they would be half an hour and they're often more than that. But you know what? I'm going to stop beating myself up about that and just talk and we'll see what happens. So the Underwood number four, it's called. And I'm going to read you the first chunk. Grand piano, black and glossy, like something Spencer Tracy played in Woman of the Year. A real typewriter. The Underwood, a number four, invented in 1927 by Franz Augustus Wagner, boasting front-stroke mechanism, single shift and ribbon inking. Now, that may not sound like poetry to you, but you need to trust me at this stage. So, grand piano black, we begin. This is a description of the colour of, of a typewriter. So, grand piano kind of works because... Well, A, it's black, but also there's something mighty, there's some majesty about these old 
typewriters. I've had a look at the Underwood number four. It isn't one of those. I'm I'm a slight typewriter fetishist, but the ones I like are those sleek pastel shaded 60s and 70s jobs smooth and low like mrs peel's lotus alan in the in the avengers tv series these ones aren't like this uh, the underwood number four looks more like a model t4 it's a it's a big high black complex spiky looking thing so grand piano black and glossy like something spencer tracy played in woman of the year Spencer Trice is obviously an old actor, loads of fabulous films with Catherine Hepburn, very sharp scripts, and he's a brilliant actor. And in Woman of the Year, he plays a sports writer, so that's why he has a typewriter. And it's interesting that he says, uh, like, something Spencer Tracy played in Woman of the Year. And it, it harks back to the grand piano image, but also... An actor typing in a film, that is playing a typewriter rather than writing, usually. It's a sort of hitting any key to look like you're a professional type of performance. But it's, again, romance here from from the off. I don't know why I said again, because it's the first time I'm making this point. But don't pick me up on every fault, for goodness sake. Romance you go to typewriters and they're a very romantic thing. I cannot pick up a typewriter without thinking of the American writer Jack Kerouac, who I love very much, and old black and white shots of him sitting at one of these brilliant, noisy machines. And they are they kick off romance in you. And so we've got the typewriter. It's grand piano black, so already it's been given a grandeur. And it's been placed in an old black and white fabulous movie played by an old black and white Spencer Tracy. So we're straight into romance and then reality kicks in. And I think in this poem, romance reality is a a thing that keeps balancing like a seesaw in this. So he says, like something Spencer Tracy played in Woman of the Year, a real typewriter... And that takes us into the real, if you like. And this sounds like it's being read from the label that might have been on the price tag of this typewriter. The Underwood, a number four, invented in 1927 by Franz Augustus Wagner, boasting front stroke mechanism, single shift and ribbon inking. So there it is. It's it's reality. It's the nuts and bolts of what this machine does and what it offers okay so we've set up we're on we're we're talking about a typewriter then a sudden gear change that that kind of comes out of nowhere it was seriously raining and what i love about that is when you're out and it's seriously raining it does stop almost every train of thought at points where it's just so oppressive and so the the dominant thing Okay, it was seriously raining, and the thing had gained a great evidential weight, recalcitrant in heft as stone, something dead and centred. As you might expect, I struggled. So, now this, this grand thing, this grand piano of a typewriter, this romantic machine, 
has now just become heavy. He's in he's in rain. Does he really want this? He calls it a thing. The thing had gained a great evidential weight. So a weight of evidence. You can't argue with the fact that this thing is heavy. And he's dragging it along. Recalcitrant in heft, a stone. That's a great line, isn't it? Recalcitrant means sort of stubbornly resistant. So it's absolutely insisting on its own weight. Recalcitrant in heft, in weight, as a stone. You might as well carry a massive stone. That's the, something dead and centred, he says. I mean, it's, it's unremittingly heavy. So it started out romantic, and then we got the nuts and bolts of it, and now it's just a pain, this thing. Why did he buy this heavy thing? As you might expect, I struggled. There's four sections to this poem, by the way, and as this section ends, this is the last four lines. At some point, a lollipop lady offered to help. By the rivers of the bus stop, I sat down and wept. So the lollipop lady obviously introduces comedy into it. Lollipop ladies, not always, but often are quite frail and... and often retired people she's offering to help him with this this lump of typewriter and that last bit by the rivers of the bus stop i sat down and wept and that is what it's psalm 137 if you're interested which but you may rather than just going to the king james bible and looking up psalm 137 you could go to any Boney M's greatest hits, and it's that um, by the rivers of Babylon, etc., etc. By the rivers of the bus stop, I sat down and wept. Is lifted straight from Boney M, which is lifted straight from Psalm one three seven. So it's a sort of self mockery here. He's recognising the melodrama. And the big meal he's making of carrying this this heavy thing along and comparing it to, I mean, in the psalm, it's captives taken to a strange land and told they have to sing even though they are desperately oppressed for the entertainment of their captors. So maybe not a quite fair comparison with the bloke who's just carrying a heavy typewriter. Anyway, we now go to part two. Here's the first chunk. I bring you things that have been brought to something like completion. A glass of milk, a nectarine, that vase of bashful daffodils. Some first edition, second hand, this striped nightshirt from Donegal. At arm's length, the shared life. So where have we gone now? This seems to be an address to another person, a loved person, a partner. I bring you things that have been brought to something like completion. Complicated, but yeah, a glass of milk, that's pretty well complete, a nectarine. That vase of bashful daffodils. Now anyone who reads poetry will not be able to read that line with that that meter and not 
think a host of golden daffodils which is a line from the william wordsworth poem i wandered lonely as a cloud uh, so the that vase of bashful daffodils is is a deliberate downplay i think of the wordsworth line that a host of golden daffodils. Just like by the rivers of the bus stop, I sat down and wept is um, is a, a deliberate sort of sl- mock version of the 137 psalm, showing him a slightly melodramatic individual, perhaps. But these seem to be things that he's bought for a loved one. He's, he's brought simply a glass of milk and nectarine of a vase of bashful daffodils, but then some first edition second hand and i like the use of first and second there every first edition seems to be second hand or everyone i own but i'm sure you can just get them first hand obviously this striped nightshirt from donegal now i'm interested in the this of that it feels like a switch to me when he's talking about the glass of milk the nectarine the daffodils the first edition these all seem to be things from the past and I'm sure that the, the, the nightshirt from Donegal, it was a gift from the past. But this nightshirt, he's, he's, he's now, he's like, he's, either he's wearing it himself or it's lying on the bed beside him. He can see, but it's, it's not that nightshirt, it's this nightshirt. So it seems to be putting the writing of the poem in his house, in his bedroom, somewhere where he can actually say this striped nightshirt from Donegal. So that's the list of gifts. At arm's length, the shared life, which is a beautiful line, because at arm's length, because it's about giving, it's about things that he's given to his partner. So the reaching out of the, the arm to hand it over puts them physically at arm's length. But also, at arm's length, the shared life is, is, is a nice contradiction because it sounds like a bit of distance there even though they are sharing a life and it reminds me of the thing that the German poet says that um, anyone in a relationship should be the defender of their partner's solitude and giving each other that kind of space to grow so there we are. There's a, we're getting a sense of the relationship at arm's length, the shared life. It's about giving, but it also suggests, I don't know, some distance maybe between them. Next bit. Speaking again of the Underwood number four, the typewriter. It's broken, of course, like most symbols. So it's not working the typewriter and also why are most symbols broken well because i think a symbol always represents a shortfall in meaning a sort of not quite corresponding so the symbol is not the thing but it's something that that, that obviously symbolizes it. it's close it's very close but not quite it so it is broken of course like most symbols okay we carry on It's broken, of course, like most symbols, but dense as an engine, all struts and levers. And has travelled from Broadway to the Kilburn Bernardos, where the monarchy are still adorning teaspoons and the crockery 
and there are never any takers for Berryman Selected or an Everyman copy of Gatsby. Now, so this typewriter, dense as an engine, all struts and levers, has travelled from Broadway to the Kilburn Bernardos. Now, Broadway is that massive road that runs through New York, of course, and uh, Kilburn is an area in North London. This points us, I think, to something that might be very relevant later in the poem, but it just shows us that the Onderwoods were made in New York. That's all we need to know for now, but he's got it at his local charity shop. And as he describes the charity shop, where the monarchy are still adorning teaspoons and the crockery, and there are never any takers for Berryman Selected or an Everyman copy of Gatsby. I don't know how often you go to your local charity shops, but you do get to know those books that aren't bought very often. Berryman, the American poet, I mean, I would have bought that, certainly. Um, But I, I go into my local Oxfam bookshop and devour what is now less than a shelf of poetry books. But anyway, in, in, in the uh, Kilburn Bernardos, the John Berryman uh, selected poems has not been sold, nor the everyman copy of Gatsby. Obviously, the great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. And he then goes on to say, Nick Carraway, in fact, Nick Carraway, I should say, is the narrator of the great Gatsby story. Nick Carraway, in fact, must have sat down to some machine like this, but carefully, respectfully, as if to dine with relatives and elders. And I think we're back there slightly, aren't we, to the respect given to this kind of machine, to the grand piano. Nick Carraway, who was a fictional character, I know, but sitting down then at one of these machines when they were new and the latest thing and respectfully as if to dine with relatives and elders. It reminds me of, I read about a scientist who always put on a suit and tie before he worked because he felt that science needed that kind of respect. And that's what this feels like. I I don't know if the modern, if a laptop, does a laptop have that kind of feel when you sit to write at a laptop? Do you feel like you are about to dine with relatives and elders? Probably not. But certainly in our uh, romantic view of typewriters, and when I say our, I mean uh, typewriter weirdos like myself and possibly Nick Laird. Yes, it does seem that the laptop doesn't have the kind of gravitas of those marvellous machines. I'm going on to part three. Now, bear with me. It is worth it. I mean, by now you must realise that we're reading a brilliant poet. Okay. Again, a big change from Nick Laird. Listen, if tonight a hurricane should rip the roof right off, these walls spin out like playing cards across the tracks and baying dark, the bedclothes whip like flags to kites, the sky straw-flecked and lightning spliced, and next... Nothing. Water ticking. What's happened now? It's like the early stages of The Wizard of Oz. If, if tonight, if a hurricane should rip 
the roof right off these walls spin out like playing cards. The walls are spinning off across the tracks and the baying dark. How, what a great description for a wild storm. The baying dark. The night is howling at you. The bedclothes whip like flags to kites because they're going high into the air. The sky straw flecked. Lightning spliced. Beautiful. And for me, the highlight of that whole chunk and next nothing, water ticking. And it's that, when something like that has happened, that sound of water dripping somewhere feels like it's in the the inner being of the house often. That horrible feeling of, of leakage, of brokenness. And that's all that's left after this storm. We don't know at this point why we're talking about this storm, but here we are. And now we're still with it. But it seems to be the next day now. Oh, by the way, I should say, before I move on, it's these walls spin out like playing cards, you'll notice. So again, he seems to be directly referring to the walls of his home. He seems to be at home. We keep coming back to him writing the poem at home, it feels like. Right. White dawn and pattern birdsong. An aftermath dismantling silence. Lobbing words like bricks. Unearthing this, a shatterproof machine. Its metallic dang and sich, persistent in the concrete dust. Keys filigreed with splinters. China shards, jags of glass. Okay, this is, seems very confusing, but bear with me. White dawn. So remember, we've had that terrible hurricane out of nowhere, and now white dawn and patterned birdsong. The birdsong seems to be the only structure left, the only thing to defeat the hurricane. An aftermath dismantling silence. So you can't There's nothing to say about what has just happened. Lobbing words like bricks sounds like some sort of uncomplicated post-shock talk, sort of very unsubtle and and clumsy. You're talking like lobbing bricks at each other because you've been so literally blown away by this sudden, whatever this hurricane was. And then he says, unearthing this, a shatterproof machine. We're back to that typewriter. It's metallic dang and sich. Now, Immanuel Kant wrote about ding and sich, and it's, it means the sort of the, the soul of a thing, a thing in itself. It's sort of the objective truth of a thing. That's ding and sich in, in Kant. Here it's dang and sich, and dang as you may know, is a sort of an angry, it's, it's, it's a, a word that's used to replace damn or dammy. That dang, I'll kill that danged cat. It's got that. Now, I don't know if this was uh, initially a mistake by Nick Laird that he's left in because it's got that extra sort of slightly pathetic human 
diffused rage of someone saying dang it or, or whatever in the midst of sort of a really inappropriate and unhelpful thing to say and to combine it with the Kant thing about the objective truth of a thing. I tell you what I'm thinking about. W.H. Auden wrote a poem and he sent it to his friend, the novelist Christopher Isherwood. And Isherwood said, I particularly like that line, the ports have names for the sea. And Auden said, oh, well, actually, you've misread it. It's my handwriting. It's actually the poets have name for the sea. But you know what? I like your mistake better than my actual line. So I'm going to make it the ports have names for the sea. And I, I, I like to think, and I don't know here, and I'll probably find out I'm wrong and it, and it should be dang and, and sick. But anyway... I think that possibly Nick Laird made a mistake here and then thought, you know what, that works really well, that dang, dang it is such shows. If, you're, if, you've, been, if you've endured a, a, a hurricane or some major disaster like that, that's all the human being can, can do is come up with something that's just pointless and does nothing, at, like lobbing words like bricks. I could be wrong. Okay. A shatterproof machine, its metallic dung and seek persistent in the concrete dust, keys filigreed with splinters, filigrees that you know, little little bits of things, china shards, jags of glass. So what we've got, a hurricane has happened. We now have this silent aftermath with some human attempt to just explain or respond to what's happened but falling very short of doing that but there solid as a rock i'm gonna hit my desk solid as a rock there is the underwood number four seemingly yeah covered in in concrete dust and splinters and china shards and glass but still there solid now listen and bear with me on this i think that this is a reference to 9-11 and the reason I think that is we were talking about romance. We were talking about how beautiful typewriters are. We were talking about charity shops and gifts that you've brought for your loved one. All those simple human pleasures. And then we had that if tonight a hurricane should rip the roof right off these walls, spin out like playing cards etc. And to me, the shatterproof machine is not just is not just a typewriter. It's about what you do with a typewriter. It's about writing. It's about creativity. It's about human beings making sense of things and creating beautiful things. Persistent in the concrete dust. It is not going to be stopped even by this hurricane and you probably think my 9-11 is too much but there is something I've discovered from um, just from looking at looking things up in this poem is that the Underwood number four it was made obviously by the Underwood typewriter company the building the Underwood building which is a sort of HQ they no longer exist but the building is still there is right next door to where the World Trade Center was. It's, it's right in that area, 
right at the far, far end of Broadway, right by the World Trade Centre. I, I, I can't believe someone as sharp as Nick Laird would not be using that juxtaposition. So I think it is a reminder of, of that simple pleasures of domesticity shattered by a sudden horror like 9-11. And this typewriter representing human endeavour, representing creativity, representing people doing beautiful things, is persistent in the concrete dust. And this section ends with a quote, not strength in the end, or even intelligence, effort, continuous effort. And in the notes I notice that and there aren't many, but there's an acknowledgement that Nick Laird says that is, he thinks anyway, a sort of paraphrased quote from Winston Churchill. Chock it all in, Nick. Not strength in the end, or even intelligence, effort, continuous effort. What a brilliant thing to have on your wall. I'm going to put that on my wall. I'm going to do that. It's a great thing for a writer to have, but it's also about the human spirit. So I think this typewriter represents the, the sort of determined, ongoing nature of the writer, keeping at it, but also human beings continuing despite terrible tragedy, despite evidence of evil, they continue. And that's what I think is going on here. If I didn't lose you on the cant ding and sick and dang and sick, I really feel you are um, strong people who have, by effort, continuous effort, got through that section. I, You have my enormous respect. There is only one section to go. I don't want to talk about this as if I want to get it out of the way, because I think this is a brilliant poem by a brilliant poet. OK, next bit. Cars swish past like hovercraft. The rain came down in stair rods. So we seem to be back now, logging that typewriter back home. Cars swished past like hovercraft. The rain came down in stair rods on the single other vertical abroad. So the rain is vertical and so is he. Everyone else has gone because it's raining so much. So he now sees himself as the single other vertical abroad. I must stop interrupting and just read this. Cars swished past like hovercraft. The rain came down in stair rods on the single other vertical abroad. Me, see-through, now washed, logging this incus, this hellmouth back home. Dried off, we lowered it into the hearth like a keystone. Exactly. There's a lot going on here. So we've got him in the rain again, logging this Incus. And Incus, well, what I know of the Incus is it's in, it's one of those, we did this at school, it's one of those bones in your ear. I think there's like three bones. And it's the shape of an anvil. So I'm guessing it's also a word for an anvil. And an anvil is a sort of traditionally heavy lump thing. So this Incus, this hell mouth, I think because it's taken him to hell, dragging it back in the rain, and also maybe 
writers go through a hell in their in their uh, creativity and then suddenly back home dried off so logging this incus this hellmouth back home full stop dried off we lowered it so now that the, the the loved one seems to be there the partner we lowered it into the hearth like a keystone exactly a keystone um, you'll probably know it's like the supporting center of something like the last piece in a jigsaw so it sounds like the person he's bought it for and he have carefully placed this typewriter in the an unused fireplace is what it sounds like to me so it's not going to be mended i don't think or used it's going to be there to represent some romantic image of creativity in their hearth, in their home. Now, this just gets better and better, I think. Next section. I wish you what you most want. Still talking to the loved one now, I think. I wish you what you most want. The steady clatter of the stringer or the foreign correspondent to be never lost for upshot. Man, I love that. Those... Four lines are, they say a great deal about love and about writing, I think. I wish you what you most want. Remember, he's just, he's, he's, he's given this person, the speaker of the poem has given this other person, this typewriter. I wish you what you most want, the steady clatter of the stringer. A stringer is... Um, this is what I'm thinking he means in this, is a, a freelance. So a freelance writer is not able to indulge in too much artistic meandering waiting. They have to get on and write, 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 write. And that's what he's wishing that the receiver of this typewriter, the steady clatter of the stringer. So I hope you can get that sort of... In- I'm clicking my fingers. Don't, that's, I don't know why, but I am. That sort of industry that you need, that steady, rock-solid industry that a writer needs, as well as the art and creativity. The steady clatter of the stringer or the foreign correspondence. So a sort of journalistic, practical, focused drive is what he's trying to give the receiver of the typewriter. To be never lost for upshot. Oh, man! I love it. Upshot, the sort of outcome, the, the, the sort of reason, the final result. So to always have a purpose to the writing, to always have a great ending, to have a great narrative to it. This is, it's, it's, this is, you could not give a writer, I think, a greater wish than that. I wish you, I'm going to say it again. I wish you what you most want, the steady clatter of the stringer or the foreign correspondent to be never lost for upshot. That's so beautiful. The last eight lines of this poem, I'm not totally sure what's going on, but I hold my hand and we can help each other to get through it. It begins, incident, full stop. It sounds like a sort of notebook entry, the sort of thing that a writer might write, incident, and then write something they've seen which they can use later. Okay, incident. Imagine words flying off the red tongue of its ribbon. 
and how its weight that afternoon took flight. When soaking wet with rain and sweat, I turned the corner of the street and saw its opposite, an ambulance outside our own front door. Okay. Incident. Imagine words flying off the red tongue of its ribbon. So the, 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 the typewriter's red. There's, you know, they have a red ribbon as well as a, a blue. So imagine words flying off it. And the typewriter has caused words to fly for him. This beautiful, lyrical, fabulously expressed poem. So think about that and how its weight that afternoon took flight. So that big, heavy lump of typewriter, that weight seemed to disappear when soaking wet with rain and sweat. We're going into rhyme. Why? Why rhyme now at this last stage? Well, that couplet there, when soaking wet with rain and sweat, it, it's broken between two stanzas. So the with rain and sweat is part of the last stanza. And I just want to read you the last stanza again with rhyme more at the forefront of my mind. With rain and sweat, I turned the corner of the street and saw its opposite, an ambulance outside our own front door. It seems a bit too rhymy, doesn't it, for such a shocking incident as seeing a, an ambulance outside the, the front door. And I think it, it is too rhymy for a reason. I think this is a case of the speaker using rhyme and regular meter. That's a very regular... It's there, I think, because it's a kind of a hiding place at a time of great distress. You see the ambulance and suddenly everything changes. It's all been very romantic. Yes, we got the 9-11 thing, of course, like a mighty shadow, but we got comedy and love and sweet little domestic things. And now there's an ambulance and I think the poet retreats into poetry, into rhyme, perhaps the most classic poetic form. And it's a bit like the way that bird song gave a pattern to the horrible aftermath of the hurricane earlier in the poem. Now the poetry comes in and gives some sort of... This is like poetry as a protective airbag. The speaker is confronted with an ambulance outside his own front door and he goes to poetry. That's his safe place. That line when he says on the street of the street and saw its opposite an ambulance. Why, you may ask, is a typewriter and an ambulance? Why are they opposites? Well, I think because a typewriter is about creativity, it's about birth, invention, human thrusting forward of the mind and the intellect, whereas ambulances are more about a dysfunctional, broken, sometimes completely finished thing. A typewriter, if you like, is potential, and an ambulance can often be an end of potential. So that's why they're opposites. So this is a sort of a, 
it's hard to say this. I don't want to reduce 9-11 in any way, but there are mighty public 9-11s in our lives and then there are small personal ones that hit us just as hard. And the speaker of the poem now is is trying to cope, I think, with this thing. But also there's other... I said I don't quite understand. When it said imagine words flying off the red tongue of its ribbon, I know it's white that afternoon took flight. Is the whole thing an imagining? Is this uh, an imagined incident, which is like a just a good shocking ending for the poem? I mean, we have, after all, already had a cosy conclusion to the rain-soaked trek when, as he puts it, dried off, they lowered the typewriter into the hearth. Perhaps this incident is an imagined, a sort of a a made-up, more dynamic and disturbing alternative ending. Perhaps it's sudden regular meter and rhyme are there to suggest, I don't know, a sort of add-on to suggest some sort of fakery going on. A more interesting upshot than a couple putting a broken typewriter in a fireplace. We've had the romance of writing and perhaps we now have the reality, the need for a dramatic ending being more important than what we might call the truth. I haven't dug deep into the biography of Nick Laird to find if he had any um, ambulance-based incidents. There'll be people I know who've listened to this thinking... Doesn't he know that Nick Laird's wife is a big famous writer and that makes the whole typewriter thing more significant? Yes, I do know that, but I also feel that when you make a poem specific, you strangle it, and when you make it more universal, you give it wings. And so I tend to avoid biography if I can. The speaker of this poem... It may be Nick Laird, it may be a version of Nick Laird, it may be a complete persona, is experiencing reality after all the romance, the self-dramatisation, the sitting by the bus stop as if he were in Babylon or switching a Wordsworth poem. All that now stops and I think he reaches for for poetry to get him out of the horror. And I like the comparison of poetry and birdsong. It's in there somewhere, I'm sure. So that's what I think the poem is about. And I'm always loath to say what a poem is about because a poem is about often many different things. But anyway, one of the things this poem's about is about romance versus reality as I said, about the fact that the angel of tragedy is always hovering over, even if we're on a comic walk with a heavy typewriter in the rain, even if we're thinking about our loved one and the little trinkets and items we've bought for them, it can all just... The roof can be ripped off and the walls fly away like playing cards... Or alternatively, if nothing much happens, you can always make up your own incident. Yes, that's what I think this poem is about. It's also brilliant to read. I've loved reading it and talking about it. I hope you coped okay. And um, 
read some Nick Laird, I think you will be delighted by it. Thank you for listening to my poetry podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you can never miss an episode. Imagine that. And you can also catch me every Saturday at 8am on Absolute Radio. Uh, Less poetic, probably funnier. See you next time.